0: This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We saw earlier this week Ontario Premier Doug Ford in a news conference get a little tough with young people. You remember the quote. He says, guys, you got to rein it in. Simple as that because we have seen numbers growing in the data that's come out for people between the ages of, say, 20 and 39, even people under the age of 20. And so what does that mean? How should we be interpreting this? It's not like we should be pointing fingers, I don't think, at every young person saying, hey, you make sure you stay home this weekend. I don't think we're at that Spot, but let's get a little bit more expert insight into this. Dr. Prabhat Jha is an epidemiologist at the University of Toronto and the director of the Center for Global Health Research at St. Michael's Hospital. And we're lucky enough to have Dr. Jha with us. Dr. Jha, how are things? Things are well and you? you know what not too bad when you look at data and i know you look at a lot of data when you look at data and you look at how young people are factoring into that data recently what does that say to you
1: it says to me that the concern is right about particularly the under 40 population being the new drivers of the recent increase most of the increase that's occurred across the provinces of Canada uh, in the last two weeks, and certainly down in the u s in the southern states has been because of new infections in younger people now on the one hand, these younger populations have quite low hospitalization or death rates, so that's that's good news in a sense it's not the really elder more vulnerable population. The bad news is they're still in the chain of transmission, so that even if a young person gets infected and might have a very mild symptoms or no symptoms, they now place their parents or grandparents at risk. And if that occurs again, then we'll have an increase in deaths, which is of concern everywhere.
0: The premier kind of got tough about this, at least tried to get a tough message. I don't know how many people under the age of 40 or certainly under the age of 25 actually heard that message, but what do you feel about the idea of of maybe some tough language toward young people? Is it time for that?
1: I think it's time to work with young people and uh, try to convince them that says, look, you might be fine, but do you really want your... Uh, parents or your grandparents to get sick because of your partying. I think the other thing that will help is trying to get the contact tracing app, which is supposed to be rolled out in Ontario, but ideally rolled out across the, the country, and get the, the younger people who are the ones with cell phones to use it. I think the third thing that could help is if bar owners or places uh, that have uh, that want to attract young people made it a rule no app, no entry, so that if if you're going to a bar and even though the bar might have some requirements, uh, you would need the app to be able to entry. Now, the benefit of that is that the app doesn't obviously protect you from the infection, but if there's someone else infected in that bar and they notify on the app, then you'd know you're exposed, and then you could isolate yourself. So it would have the main goal of preventing clusters of infections. We can't prevent every infection, but we can prevent clusters of infections.
0: Dr. Prabhat Jha joining us, epidemiologist at the University of Toronto, director for the Centre for Global Research at St. Michael's Hospital. And that's, that's a really interesting way to look at that. No entry unless you have that contact tracing app. As a medical professional, how much faith do you have in canadians and a contact tracing app do you do you think this could be a real country changer for us or is it just going to be a wait and see to see how many people will actually use it
1: well we know that only if it gets above sixty percent use in any particular network will it be effective Uh, for example in iceland only about forty percent of the population took it up so it wasn't very useful but here uh, what matters is if young people in the networks that they have, the social circles they have, if they're using the app, then it should work to alert them that they've been exposed, they should isolate and protect, certainly, the seniors that they contact. We don't have any many alternatives, uh, Mike. I, I mean, for example, in Switzerland, they didn't do tough love. They just did tough in the sense that... Uh, a, A nightclub with 300 people uh, had one positive, and the Swiss government pretty much locked up all 300, said, nope, you're forced to quarantine. That won't work in Canada. So we need to try to appeal to young people's sense of uh, community and saying you're protecting your parents or grandparents. And we need to say all we're asking you to do is make sure you're on an app. And then the restaurants, I think, and, uh, and places also need to try to open up uh, or make sure that as they open up they try to keep the policies and it's hard you know in your bar you're trying to drink and have fun and to put on a mask but they can encourage basically accept when you're drinking then keep the mask on try to keep hand washing stations all of these things will help uh, from what we know but and we need to do it because uh, we've had such success stories right across the country bc in particular has done very well uh, we don't want to let this victory slip away by ignoring young people. And we have to work with young people. You can't shout at them or lecture them.
0: Does it ever concern you that if things did slip away, they could get to a really bad spot, given that you can ask people to do something really, really hard once? It's tougher to ask them to do something really, really hard, like stay inside twice?
1: It is tougher because there is an element of fatigue. Uh, I don't think we're anywhere near that point here in Canada. That's, it's a different scenario in parts of the U.S. But if we if we keep the focus saying the new infections are in the younger populations, we're not so concerned about them flooding the hospitals as we were earlier. So if we keep the focus saying test, isolate, do contact tracing, then we'll have to live with this kind of low-level epidemic for a while. That'll be the new normal. But I'm confident we can do that. It would need all Canadians to say we're on board with the battle. You can't leave it to somebody else to to, to fight this virus. Everyone, is, one of us has to fight
0: the virus. Well said. Dr. John, thank you so much for your insight and your time today. Really appreciate it.
1: You're welcome. Thanks, Mike.
0: That is Dr. Prabhat who is an epidemiologist at the University of Toronto, the director for the Centre for Global Health Research at St. Michael's Hospital. And if we look at, at a contact tracing app, it's going to be another thing, you know, that this is something that when it was first raised, we talked a lot about it. And I expected to hear far more pushback, maybe, and... Maybe now that it it hasn't come out yet, maybe that's why we're not getting pushback. You look at the masking pushback you get. I mean, seriously, the names I've been called for talking about masking—the same sort of thing with anybody on any radio station or or hosting any show. You know, the the things that people will say to you are actually pretty nasty. Um, but you're just trying to say, look, you know, this is this is not hard. What you're being asked to do is not hard. It's not a step toward being overregulated. It's not a step toward being made into a robotic society. It's all it's doing is asking you to follow some simple rules because, as Dr. Jaw points out, we're going to be in what is hopefully for us a low level epidemic. If we can get, you know, the numbers down where they are right now, you're gonna have little flare ups. All the medical professionals say that's gonna happen. But with contact tracing, you can kind of snuff those out before they become too big. And we've got evidence of that. Look to Kingston. They are not riding 400 new cases a day. They had a terrible outbreak. But it was controlled. It was snuffed out. At least that's how it appears. And it isn't hard. We're not being asked to do a lot. So if you're sitting there worried that somebody's implanting a a microchip in your brain through all this, please stop, you know, please stop. This this is about doing little things and fighting the fight and actually caring for the person who lives next to you, works next to you, or walks next to you. When you look at leagues and associations, and you look at how they've handled this pandemic, right away... Just about everybody shut down all over the world. And slowly, leagues have been either coming back or putting in some practices that they can use in order to get back. And a lot of times you have some plans that are very fluid, but it seems that some leagues and you can look at the National Football League especially, just seem to be saying, yeah, well, uh, we'll just wait a few more days and uh, maybe things will get better. But we've had some organizations, we've had some associations, some leagues, that seem to jump right away and say, okay, what do we need to know? Whose expertise do we need to get? Let's sit down. Let's figure this out. Let's write a guideline to return. And that's what they have done. And I think we need to highlight... The Women's Flat Track Derby Association. Because if you look at what they did, they seemed to make that that move right away. It wasn't, "Eh, you know, we'll wait and see what happens. Maybe late July? Maybe this will be over? They didn't do that at all. And now they have a return to play that is really being pointed to as a guideline to create your own guideline from. Joining us is Erica Vanstone, who's the executive director of Women's Flat Track Derby Association. Erica, thanks so much for taking some time for us today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: Let's kind of go back to when things had to halt and your first reaction, because everybody wanted to wait and see, but it seemed that You guys didn't wait that long before you said, "Okay, what do we need to know and who do we need to talk to? Who did you decide to talk to to help out in this case?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, um, first of all, we're based in the United States. We're based in Austin, Texas, but the staff is remotely based. And I personally live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is one of the areas that the first wave of COVID-19 hit pretty hard in the United States. Um, And so one of my fellow staff members lives right outside of New York City. So we lived in areas of the United States that saw COVID-19 at its worst before a lot of other parts of the country. So we knew right away what this could do. Um, And because we operate in over 23 countries, including Canada, um, we were just Spending the first couple of weeks pulling information from around the globe, we have folks in the UK giving us information, folks in Germany, Australia, New Zealand. And what was clear was that there would really be no direct guidance on how sports could or should investigate operating in and around a pandemic, right? Like the vacuum of information was the thing that was most apparent Um, And that vacuum really was kind of unacceptable to us. So we pretty much jumped to action in in early March and said, well, we're going to need to find some experts. So we reached out to the community. It it turns out there are quite a few really passionate frontline workers and epidemiologists in roller derby uh, that were willing to help us put a plan together.
0: Wow. Okay. So let's kind of look at what they told you. We're talking with Erica Vanstone. And if you're looking for guidelines on how to create a guideline on return to play, the Women's Flat Track Derby Association is getting a lot of credit for doing this in the right way. So what did you hear from the people that you reached out to?
2: Well, what's interesting is we got a lot of different answers, right? So that told me right away that we we were going to have to make some of our decisions on our own, which kind of stinks, but also it gave us a little bit of freedom to do that. Um, so the most important thing that we were trying to figure out that took us the longest was how much COVID is reasonable in your community to even attempt to play a sport. And, and beyond that roller derby, isn't just, you know, passively touching another person like it's a contact (laughs) sport you know what i mean like you're actively sweating on someone else so a mask isn't really going to help you um so we really worked hard to review a bunch of different health organizations metrics around that and the calculations that we came down to we did uh calculations for spread out areas that didn't have a lot of people um, and Densely populated areas, and fifty in a hundred thousand over fourteen days was really the number we felt the most comfortable with,
0: okay, so fifty positive cases in, in a hundred thousand over fourteen days
2: yes, so we we even have a math formula in our guide to help folks calculate that out because it's you know. We're, we're really asking our clubs to get involved at the ground level with the data that each of their individual governments are presenting them with, because this is the, the lowest common denominator we had was math, right? Like, you might not be getting the same information from your government depending on where you lived, but if you could find out how many positive cases that there were, you could calculate it out.
0: Yeah. I like this already. I love when things come down to math, because math is tough to argue with. Right?
2: Yeah. Like, who doesn't doesn't love sports stats?
0: (laughs) Erica Vanstone joining us, executive director of the Women's Flat Track Derby Association, as we look at their return to play and kind of how they came up with it. So, you got a whole bunch of recommendations. Can you... Tell us maybe how this would look for any particular club. I know everybody's kind of different based on how the virus is in that community, but what sorts of things did you see as being really important for a contact sport that's going to share things like sweat? Because I think a lot of football players would be interested to know.
2: Yeah. So what we decided was um, most governments have, and, and local and municipal and city governments, um, uh, provincial governments, like most of them, were having some of the same types of recommendations. So we knew uh, stay at home orders had to be lifted. We knew that your government had to either explicitly or implicitly say that you could congregate in congregations of at least 50, um, that you could um, have a fully functioning public transportation system in your area, that hospital admissions were down. Uh, that the percentage of positive tests were down. So we had like this very um, specific framework of if these conditions are are right for you, then you can start to watch the positive case numbers. So you do the calculations and you figure out, like, for example, the metric we're looking at in Philly, 50 per 100,000 over 14 days is roughly 56 cases of positive COVID per day. So we're looking, uh, like I look at the city's numbers every day, we're still somewhere around 130. So that tells me that we're not quite ready to contemplate getting on the ladder system. And the ladder system really kind of helps you uh, slowly get back to contact. If there are any resurgences of the virus, it tells you what to do. Either you pause or you get off. Um, And it's meant to slowly move clubs through the process of return.
0: Okay, and that word, that word slowly, how key yeah. do you find that word has been?
2: Yeah, it's it's vital because I think entering into, uh, in particular, WFTDA Roller Derby is an amateur sport. We don't have the tens of thousands of um, of humans or millions of dollars that, say, the MLB does. And by the way, the MLB has way more money than we do and they don't have it figured out yet, you know? So I think it's important to understand that um, we care about whether or not folks are contracting COVID, we don't want that. So we're we're advocating for a very slow return. If there are any cases, clubs can back out of it. Um, if there are no cases, clubs can feel free to try to proceed as safely as, as they can. Um, But I think it was important for us to give clubs the power to do that as their area allowed for, because not every not every area is experiencing COVID in the same way.
0: Erica Vanstone with its executive director of the Women's Flat Track Derby Association and Erica you just hit on something that may pique some interest certainly in some of the smaller cities and the medium sized and sort of large cities in our province because we have for instance in London we have what would be classed as an amateur hockey team that doesn't mm-hmm. have a big TV deal to get money from and they're looking and saying okay how do we get the league going again here so when it comes to the fact that crowds are not allowed to be what they were what have you seen how how has that worked
2: yeah we we rely on our community probably in the same way uh, the hockey leagues do in in a lot of places in Canada we rely on our community to be our supporters to be our fans to be there in the stands when we're having games and you know one of the decisions we made early on was that that was really important to us, and we didn't want to um, we didn't want to create an unsafe situation for them, so really you're not allowed to have audiences per our plan until later on as things are progressively better for the area and we we did that recognizing that a lot of areas won't won't be ready for a long time to have those fans but we made it pretty clear that, you know, attempting to return uh, unsafely would potentially expose fans to a risk of infection, and we just were not okay with that.
0: How about travel? Because some clubs do travel a little bit, so how about concerns over travel?
2: Yeah, and I think um, this is actually pretty applicable to to your region. Quite a few leagues in Ontario travel um, to the United States to play. Um, and so we definitely recognized in our plan that um, interleague and interregion play wasn't something that we were advocating for until much later in the plan. Um, return to domestic gameplay, for example, happens in tier five of the seven tier system. Um, and we knew that uh, a long haul in international gameplay would have to be uh, closer to the end of the plan. And we knew that that meant that that was going to take a long time. Um, but I think as we're seeing play out in some other sports, the amount of travel that Americans are able to do anyway is extremely limited right now. So we were kind of uh, ahead of the curve on predicting that it would be really hard to travel. So it's a much later tier in our plan.
0: And I guess finally, Erica, how has the feedback been over all of this?
2: Well, we've gotten some really great feedback on it. Um, And in particular, as you mentioned, we had uh, an article in Wired magazine, which was really um, awesomely flattering to us. And out of that, We built a relationship with a network of journalists and um, epidemiologists, and we are putting together this awesome uh, open forum on uh, return plans around COVID-19 next Thursday, uh, which is going to be awesome. It's hosted by um, Marist College. Uh, Our friend Jane McManus, who was formerly of ESPN and writes the New York Daily News, is now at Marist College and offered to help us sponsor. And we have uh, Zach Binney, who's an NFL epidemiologist. Uh, We've got uh, George Atala from the NFL Players Association, uh, Brooke Elby from the NWSL Players Association, and they just finished their tournament. Um, So it's going to be a really good conversation for us to have moving forward, because this is really, this is not the end, right? Like one season in COVID is not the end. And I think Sports league leadership is going to have to work together to solve problems if we want to survive economically and physically through COVID-19.
0: Well said. Well, Erica, thank you for all the hard work you've done. It's paying off not just for your association, but for others, too, to be able to look at this. We really appreciate the time. Please stay safe.
2: You too. Thanks.
0: That's Erica Vanstone, Executive Director of the Women's Flat Track Derby Association. So they've come up with, with the guidelines. You can go to their website. I, you know, As she says, it's a seven-tier plan, so we're not going to sit here and read all tiers. But if you wind up going to WFTDA.com, WFTDA.com, you can find it pretty easily on their website. And it, it will outline kind of how things go, and it does look at it from a very regional approach. In the midst of the old pandemic, we have had a scandal in government, and things that have looked bad with regard to the WE Charity, where the federal government decided to give something worth hundreds of millions of dollars to a charity that had direct ties to members of the federal government, including the Prime Minister and the finance minister, and that thing then fell apart. And what we're talking about is, of course, the volunteer program that could have benefited a lot of students who couldn't find jobs this summer because they either got a late start or perhaps because those jobs didn't move into stage three or haven't even moved into stage three. You know, if, if a student was working at a particular restaurant in downtown Toronto and that's the only job that they could find, it may not have opened yet because they're not in stage three. So this could have benefited a lot of people. Instead, it has become a government hot potato. It has become a dripping mess that this week only seemed to get worse when you had the federal finance minister, Bill Morneau, admitting that he had to write a check for $41,000 to cover unpaid travel benefits he received from the wee Charity three years ago as he and his family appeared to truck around with them on some trips. Well, don't worry. He, he was just able to write a $41,000 check. Isn't everybody? So there seems to be a lot of, a lot of stuff that, that is a little out of touch here. Let's get some thoughts on this particular story as we close out the show from Duff Conacher from Democracy Watch, where he is a co-founder. Duff, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Duff, when you started watching this story, and I know you've been watching it closely from the beginning, when did you start to look at it and say, wait a minute, this isn't just like other stories. This this seems to have a whole lot more layers to it.
3: Oh, when I first heard about it, uh, I was quoted in the Toronto Star saying that uh, it's a complete waste of money to hand this uh, program out to anyone outside government because there's already two federal government programs that are very similar, Canada Summer Jobs and the Canada Service Corps. And secondly, that it raised huge ethical uh, questions given the Prime Minister's ties to the WE Charity. And as we've now learned, the Finance Minister has uh, very deep ties as well. To the we charity so it's a conflict of interest and raises serious ethical issues for the finance minister as well
0: and that was just at the outset i mean that's that's right off the bat so now we have seen things continue to develop even before we get to some of the latest developments how about the idea that you felt this shouldn't have been handed out to the organization it was handed out to how could this have been done and, and maybe even be up and running by now
3: well that is the big question how was it done and the prime minister and the finance minister and all the Trudeau cabinet are hiding behind the claim that the public service uh, public servants on their own without any influence at all from the prime minister finance minister or anyone in their office or anyone acting on their behalf came up with the idea on their own that uh... the we charity should be handed a sole source funding of up to forty-three point five million dollars, which violates the spending rules, and given it was well known at the time, that at least the prime minister's family's connections with We Charity violated the ethics rules. So um, that's the claim they're they're making, and the question is: Is that claim true? And we can only know if the Auditor General, ethics commissioner, and RCMP do a full and, and complete investigation and see the entire communication record of absolutely everyone who communicated with anyone about this in the government and also in We Charity. And if they don't look at that full record, then it's they're participating in a cover-up. And if the government doesn't disclose the full communications record, then they will... The Canadians are quite justified in suspecting that they're hiding wrongdoing.
0: Hmm. How? How possible is it to get the documents that they would need is this a is this a difficult search
3: well the ethics commissioner has full powers of an inquiry uh so full powers of a court to subpoena witnesses and subpoena documents and it's up to everyone in government to disclose those documents uh and everyone at the we charity now we won't of course uh very likely see recordings of phone calls, even video conference calls through one of the uh, online services, unless people happen to record them. But we'll at least know who called whom when, and there's no reason why we can't get all the emails and all the BlackBerry pins and all the texts and a list of any meetings um, because that the Ethics Commissioner has full power to get that information. The big question is, will the Trudeau Cabinet disclose those records? In the case of uh, when Trudeau was found guilty of trying to stop a prosecution against the S&C Lavalin Company and was found guilty by the Ethics Commissioner for trying to influence the Auditor General to stop the prosecution, the government is still hiding documents and records and still refusing to allow nine people to talk to the ethics commissioner. So we don't know the full truth of that process. And if the government tries to hide things in this case, as in the SNC-Lavalin case, Canadians are quite justified to assume the government is hiding wrongdoing because there's no reason to hide anything if you haven't done anything wrong.
0: That's it. Duff Conacher joining us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, as We look at the We Charity scandal and the story that has come from it. Is it absolute power corrupts absolutely? I mean, is this the kind of stuff that we look at and they just feel, oh yeah, we we can do this, nobody'll notice, and this is this is quite fine, even though the finance minister has direct ties to this, and oh by the way, yeah, the finance minister and his family took some trips and and didn't reimburse the wee charity, but don't worry, if somebody finds that out, they'll just write a check, it it'll all be fine. I mean, is this the attitude? It's one that that it almost seems possible to believe, but. Could that could that actually be the attitude that exists?
3: Well, uh, the Liberals, when this process started in April, were riding pretty high in the polls and have continued to right through to handing the wee Charity the check. So they they could have felt, well, you know, this is going to be bad. We know it's going to be bad. Prime Minister Trudeau acknowledged that when they were sitting in the cabinet meeting for final approval of the the funding to We Charity that uh, the um, that some people raised the conflict of interest for him, and he didn't leave the room. Uh, so they were aware of it, and they must have known there'd be some political cost. People would look at this and say, "What well, the prime minister's approving almost forty three million, almost forty four million dollars in funding to one of his wife's favorite charities?" <laughs> of course, the public's going to look at that and say it's smelly. Uh, but you know we're they might have said, we we got a double-digit lead in the polls, and even if we lose 5% of those voters, we still will have a lead of, of possibly more than 10% still in the polls. So what do we care? And We Charity needs our support, and we want to support them. They're hurting financially, and, and uh, we'll just defend it the way we always have, saying we're trying to do good, and it's fine to break the rules when you're doing good. So that may be it. Um, who knows? What's, no one can do a Vulcan mind meld. Spock doesn't actually exist. And we can't tell the why of anything as a result, because people will always make up a story after the fact to make themselves look good and and uh, about why they did something so uh all we can get at is the how it happened, we know when it happened and uh and we we'll, we know what happened, and we just need to look at the how and that's something the auditor general ethics commissioner and r c m p all have to investigate fully and completely. And if the government doesn't disclose the information, they're, then they're clearly hiding wrongdoing and should, should face an even higher political cost.
0: We're talking with Duff Conacher. Co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, one final thing, and that is the next when in all of this. If we're looking at investigations, they tend to take a while. Um, Any idea, you know, what the parameters might be like, what the timeline on this might look like before Canadians completely forget? I mean, if you bring up SNC-Lavalin right now, it's, yeah, I think I remember the details of that, but still a lot of time has passed. We don't want to see a lot of time pass once again, but are we left to know that it probably will?
3: Well, uh, we have uh, now three committees looking at various aspects of the situation. And the good thing about having a minority uh, parliament where the the Liberals only hold a, a minority of the seats is that the opposition parties control the committees. They hold the majority, and if they work together, they can keep questioning anyone they want, Uh, and keep calling them as witnesses and look at the full aspects of this. Now, the problem is that, and they can also request documents, and the government does have to turn them over unless they say no, and then the committee is forced to go to court, which rarely happens. So we'll just see. Uh, There's been a commitment from the head of the Privy Council Office, which is the office that serves the prime minister and the cabinet. They've said we're going to disclose the full government record of communications, uh, when they'll do that, whether they try and delay it, whether they try and keep some of it back, saying it's cabinet secrets or those usual unjustifiable excuses, we'll see. But the committees will continue holding the hearings and drag it out and drag it out. And the longer it drags out, the worse it will be for the government because it will be in the news more and more. So uh, maybe the government will cooperate and do a document dump of all the records and the public will be able to look at them, not just the Ethics Commissioner and the Auditor General and RCMP. Their investigations will usually take months, if not into one to two-year periods, and then their reports will come out. Hopefully they'll do full reports looking at the whole process and not just little tiny aspects of it, like the gift that you mentioned uh, of the trips that more and his family took from We Charity. We need a full and complete examination of how it ended up that WE Charity could possibly be recommended to be given almost $44 million of the public's money, given especially when the government already had two programs running that could easily have adopted this program, and, uh, and that $44 million of the public's money wouldn't have been burned and wasted by WE Charity.
0: Duff, thank you so much for your attention to this and what you've already contributed to this story and for taking some time for us today. Really appreciate it.
3: Thank you, and I'll keep you up to date on uh, what we receive from the Ethics Commissioner and RCMP and, and Auditor General in response to the complaints we're filing.
0: Sounds great. Take thank care you. of yourself and keep safe.
3: You too. Stay safe.
0: That's Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. So you get in and you think... and. You know, we're foolish if we don't think this is how governments look at it. Okay, well, how are we doing? And what's our approval rating? Uh, how are Canadians feeling? Oh, they like the way we're handling the pandemic? Oh, well, you know, my friends over here, they they really could use a hand. And, you know, why, why don't we just do this? I'm not saying that that's what the prime minister did. I'm not saying that's what the PMO did. I'm not saying that that's what the finance minister did. But you can look and say, yeah, um... Things get moved around in the old shell game of politics, but you've got to be able to step outside yourself and see that this one was ugly, and still is. And when you combine it with SNC-Lavalin, come on, seriously, you know? Who do you think we are? The last thing that you want is is to know that people who are supposed to be looking out for your best interests are, well, the little Canadian peons. I don't want to be treated like a peon. Do you? No. We're all equal here. So don't be pulling stuff that says, oh, we know better than you. Give me a break. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.